Greetings, citizens of Earth. You are barking a happy tune with my pal Smurf of Smurf and the Magic Tones on 5280 Geek. Live from the Figus Studios, it is Weekend Geek Update. Smurf here, and we're ready to get a little boozy with you this week. I have, and it's not very often that I can say this, a master in the studio this week. A master distiller, no less. Everybody knows that I love booze, and everybody knows my flair for good bourbon, red breast, of course, and, you know, whatever wine may, may be on tap. But this gentleman... The one, the only master distiller that I've ever actually met, Stephen Gould of Golden Moon Distillery, is giving me the pleasure and some bottles in studio today. Hey, everybody. How are you? <laughs> Hopefully that, that, that Warner is a good, good intro for you. Oh, hey. You know, um, so I'm Stephen Gould. I own Golden Moon Distillery. Uh, I've been known to kind of roam the world as a consulting master distiller as well. I judge spirits competitions. I write a little bit about spirits. I'm kind of a booze geek, so there you have it. Um, I'm kind of a geek in general, so I, I'm in good company here. Yes, we we were before we off mic. We were already talking about Book of Boba, which, if you haven't watched last week's episode, was Susie and I's best. We are on fire, but Stephen actually is is very comparable. You have stuff that I would be impressed if he had a fiberglass Boba Fett. I did so suit. so years ago uh, when I was in graduate school. Um, I acquired a, a and then finished off a fiberglass full Boba Fett set of armor, the full kit, um, and got rid of it for some strange reason after I got out of graduate school, and I've regretted it to this day. Because you were supposed to grow up. They, they told you you can't keep kids. Hey, I, 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 had, I, had an, I had an MBA, and <laughs> I was going off to be an executive at a big company, and... You know, I was supposed to be in a suit and a tie and mm-hmm. be mature, and, you know, I did. It was Ford Motor Company I went to, and I got rid of it when I moved to the, to Detroit from Reno, Nevada, where I went to graduate school, actually where I grew up. And about a year and a half after I got to Ford, I, I, I went back to my dark waves, and while I was still a growing executive at Ford and was pretty successful in my 10 years there, um, started moonlighting at a friend's punk bar, uh, in Cass Corridor, uh, called the Gold Dollar. It's where the White Stripes played their first gig. It is. I was on the stick that night. Their set was Shut less than up. 10 minutes, and it was not memorable. But having said that, Jack was always around. Um, Jack is always right. Their first album is way better than their second. You know, with Jack, so so there's actually a, a live box set called Live at the Gold Dollar. Mm-hmm. And I was actually there for most of those recordings. Um, and I, oh. uh, Neil Yee, who owned the Gold Dollar, who grew up here in Denver and is now in Toronto... Uh, showed up at the distillery uh, right after Jack bought all those recordings because Neil owned the rights to all the old recordings. Right. And um, as part of the deal, Neil got 40 copy, forty of the box sets. And he came to visit his mother, who's still here in Denver. And he walks into the distillery one day. It's about four years ago. And he's, hey, man. And I'm, I'm like, Neil Yee, what the hell are you doing here? He goes, oh, I got something for you. He literally had no call, no nothing. Just, just walked into the out distillery. Out of the blue. Hands me a box set from the gold dollar and looks at me and goes, this is for you, by the way, you owe me two bottles of absinthe. 
which I gave him. Okay. Gladly. I think that's a fair trade. So, so I, went to, I went to the big corporate world and ended up working. Uh, I ran Ford's supply chain in Asia for, for three and a half of my 10 years. Wow. Uh, worked all, you know, all over the world for Ford. Um, moonlit whenever I could at the bar. And uh, I was a bartender and, and a punk bar, which was great. Um, hung out with a lot of cool people. Uh, got into the Detroit music scene pretty heavily. And, you know, it was a fun scene in those days. You know, it was it was the Detroit garage music scene that sort of came out of grunge and went in another direction. Um, yeah, I can't like You got the dirty rock and roll out of that. Well, I mean, so I what I didn't mention Kid is... Kid Rock kind of came about that time. Kid Rock occasionally would come into the gold dollar. He mm-hmm. was not famous then. He would mm-hmm. sit at the end of the bar and would drink uh, Stolen Cranberry. Uh, the Detroit he's Cobras... Still, he's still drinking that. <laughs> the Detroit Cobras were regulars. Wow. Um, and their guitar player used to walk up to the bar... Grunge around in his pocket for quarters because locals could get strows for a buck, <laughs> and by the time he could find three quarters to put on the on the bar, I would hand him a can and just say, "Take the just coins." Go. Just go. You know, um, <laughs> it was great. It was you know, Ford was Ford was a very stressful place when you're a young management trainee, right. junior executive, whatever the heck I was, and being able to go into into what at the time was the most dangerous mile of asphalt in the country, Cass Corridor. Yeah. And sling cheap cocktails across the bar with you know amazing musicians on stage at this funky cool live house kept me sane. Um but it also sort of got me I when I was in graduate school I founded a brewery with some friends. I started uh I wrote the business plan for my first distillery which talked out of it by a guy named Fritz Maytag, Anchor Brewing. Fritz said, go get a real job, so I went for it, which is why I got rid of my Boba Fett armor and went to Detroit. And so um, I kept being fascinated by the booze business. And then when Ford sent me to Asia, uh, I started a side gig. Um, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve in Detroit. And one of the guys I was in the Marine Corps Reserve with was Chief of Brewing Process Engineering for uh, what you would know as Stroh's. Mm -hmm. It was actually part of Pabst. And so I started buying all their overstocks and selling them into Hong Kong to go into China <laughs> as a side gig. That's a good side gig. Then, because I, I was working in India and China at the time, but going back and forth, uh, I somehow made friends with the guys that ran Allied Demac, which is now Diageo in India. Mm-hmm. And they had extra capacity, and my friends that were buying the beer in Hong Kong to go into China wanted whiskey. So I started brokering whiskey out of India that was distilled in Scotland, bottled in India, and shipping it through Hong Kong into China. Holy moly. So I'm running around the world doing all this and shipping car parts. And um, and hanging out with Kid Rock. No, that was before, and I never really hung out with him. He was just <laughs> at the end of the bar. I think I maybe said 20 words to the guy. He is – I, I want to try – he's got um, a beer that he's brewing called Badass. And I don't know if I want to try it. Or just run the other way, but I'm very curious so. Here's the thing. It. So I so I said I'm a trained brewer. I had a brewer a brewery in graduate school, right? Um, and I know a lot of brewers. I know a lot of people in that business. Um, if Kid Rock's brewing beer, chances are it's contract brewed by somebody that knows what they're doing, and it's probably a decent beer. I would hope so. You know, I greatly doubt he does anything more than occasionally walk in the business and look around. Probably gets a can, a six. You know, pack. I mean, I, I've <laughs> as you know, as you said. I have that dirty term of master distiller that people now call me. 
Um, I've done some work and, and have been approached by multiple rock stars and country stars and hip-hop stars. Um, we're in discussions with a major country star right now. I won't say his name. Uh, he did we just play. NBA's. He did just play here in Denver last fall. Oh, um, at Ball Arena. Uh-oh. Probably figure it out. Yep. Um, I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but he's he's one of like ten calls I've had in the last year from big stars that want to do a whiskey or they want to do a gin. Um, I've well, been and I've seen that because you got like aviation gin, which is Ryan Reynolds thing. Well, no, let's talk. No, no, it's not. Well, it is, but it's not. So right. av- aviation was created by my friend Christian. Okay. Christian Krongstad and his partner Tom Mooney. They own House Spirits. Then they sold the brand to Davos Brands. Davos Brands, I don't know what the deal is with Ryan Reynolds, but it was a hell of a deal. Evidently. Um, but the brilliancy of, of, of Christian and Tom is that they still manufacture it. So they sold the brand, but they still do the manufacturing. But Christian actually did that formula, and it was two generations later that Ryan Reynolds took it, and it's been great for my friends. They, they don't own the brand. But it, they're, they're benefiting it. from it, though. They're benefiting hugely, and they're nice people, and they started, like, you know, in a tiny little postage stamp. Aww. And it's an amazing story, you know? Because, so. I mean, I, I know, because, like, even just to name a few, you've got, like, Colbert, you have uh, George Clooney, mm-hmm. you've got Ryan Reynolds. But they're um, all different models. Yeah, and, and it, it's amazing how these stars have latched on to, I mean, Ackroyd, Papa Ackroyd, who I've met. He's got his uh, Crystal Head Vodka, mm-hmm. which he, he's even flat right out said, I've made more money on this than I have my acting career, which is absolutely just mind-blowing. You know, it, it's weird because, you know, I mean, every star seems to want one now, and some of them are great, and mm-hmm. some of them are not. I mean, Jimmy Buffett has made how many alcohol brands? And I don't think, and I love I Jimmy Buffett. I got a Buffett, bottle of Cabo Wabo at home. But that's not Jimmy Buffett. That's Sammy Hagar. Oh, that is Hagar. That's Sammy right, Hagar. You're right. That is Hagar. So, yeah, I yeah, yeah. I was because I got it signed at a concert when I was there with the radio station. <laughs> well, it's funny. So I was talking to a big rock star about three years ago yeah. about a whiskey project. And he was talking about, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And he said, quote, you know, well, what about George? Because this is right when they'd sold their brand. George Clooney. Right. And I said, I looked at him and I said, have you ever heard of Cabo Wabo? And he goes, no, what's a Cabo Wabo? And I said, do you remember Sammy Hagar? And this individual said to me, uh, well, I was a rock star in the 80s, so I know Sammy. Mm -hmm. I said, it was his tequila brand. He goes, oh, yeah, he had one, didn't he? And I said, so he sold it for a couple hundred million dollars to Grupo Campari 20 years ago. Give or take rough figures, a billion dollars today like George Clooney. Right. He goes, okay, what's your point? And I said, I'm going to ask you again. Have you ever heard of Cabo Wabo? People remember it, but it's not the massive brand that that perhaps, and this individual wanted, wanted to build a 100-year whiskey brand. Wow. And he's a big name rock star, um, and I did some consulting for him. And um, he may or may not pull it off. I hope he does. And see, that's what I find very interesting because building a 100-year brand, Average, I've never done that. <laughs> I, well, I mean, it's hard because the average age of a, a whiskey is 12 years from, like, conception, mash, and all of that. Or can you, like, accelerate it? No. So let's talk about age for a second. Um, and this is a rabbit hole that I go down pretty regularly. So age numbers are based upon the amount of time 
in a 53-gallon American standard barrel, something sits. Okay. Because that's a certain ratio between surface contact, the environment the barrel's in, because barrels breathe, Bar- barrels et cetera. Barrels breathe, and so does the environment that it's around. So, so with an American whiskey, any designated whiskey, so that's a bourbon, a rye, a wheat, mm-hmm. a malt, whatever, American, it has to be new oak. And it has to be charred new oak. It doesn't actually have to be a barrel. It just says container. But it has to be new oak. It doesn't have to be American oak. It can be French. It can be Andean. It can be Wherever Hungarian. The cast comes from. But it's got to be Quercus. It's got to be oak. Okay. okay. And it's got to be charred, not toasted like a wine barrel. So it has to touch new charred oak. It has to be in, a, in an oak container. With new oak, American whiskeys or any whiskey that goes into new oak is going to get so much extraction that, you know, by the time you get to 12 years, you're starting to get dropout because it's over oaked. Oh. Where in Scotland or in Ireland, where they're using used barrels, mm-hmm. which already have had a lot of the, the turpins, the tannins, the vanillins, the creosote extracted out of it by an American whiskey, then it goes, or a wine or whatever they're using, then they can put these, these their whiskeys into them and age them for 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. Wow, okay. But the longer you age a whiskey in a barrel, the more knackered that barrel needs to be before you put the whiskey in or you're going to over oak it so because i know the rules for bourbons that single cast no because i thought that was like one of the caveats that it had to be like a single cast for it to be qualified or classified no, as no. a bourbon so let me let's finish talking about barrels for yes second. Talk, finish talking about barrels so everything everything with the aging numbers that we all know and people drink by the numbers Absolutely, they do. It is tied to a, the 53-gallon American standard barrel. And the reason that that barrel exists is in the late 1800s, you had a philosophy called scientific management. It was tied to the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And the 53-gallon barrel became the standard not because it was the best way to make whiskey, but because it was the best way to mass-produce whiskey. Because they want to drink. So... Standardized racking, standardized storage, large enough volume to produce large, large volumes of it mm-hmm. without spending a huge amount on wood. So if you go to Europe, if you go to Spain and see the old brandy producers, you go to Sweden, where they've been making whiskey for a couple hundred years in these weird sort of 10-gallon odd-looking barrels. Um, if you go to Ireland and get old pot still whiskey that was made out in the woods right. or out in, like, in, in County Donegal, um, they were made in one, two, three, four, five gallon barrels. And I've got an 1850 Donegal pot still. No, sorry, County Tyrone pot still. In my, in my distillery, um, it was given to me as part of the prototyping we did for an Irish project that I was consulting a master distiller on. Right. Another rock star. Um, and that project's moving on its way. Uh, and I tasted it. We know for a fact that that came out of probably a two gallon barrel. And it is ambrosia. Really? And, but it also sat in a, gla- in, in a glass bottle in a basement full of mud for 100-plus years. Wow. So. Because, I mean, the only, the only distillery abroad that I have been to that I've toured is Lagavulin. Okay. It's a good place to go. It is a good place to go because the heritage and, and the family is deep. I mean, it is ingrained in it, and the philosophy, but I think it comes through because, and this is where I got my numbers because the, the distiller is like, one guy who was a master distiller, he barely got to taste his second batch because of the years mm-hmm. that were involved in, 
in so, the process. So I worked on this bid project in Ireland, um, and there were two consulting master stillers on it. Actually, at one point there were three. So there was myself and then Ian McMillan, who's a big Scottish distiller. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, the, we were fir- the two that were first brought in. And then uh, my late great friend, David Pickrell, uh, so Maker's Mark, Whistlepig, Hillrock. David was sort of a mentor to me, but we, were con- we consulted together. Okay. Uh, we weren't really partners in that we didn't Tag have a team. business together. But he, he literally worked for me on, the, on this big project in Ireland, and I worked for him on a big project for a big heavy metal band here in the U.S. You might be able to figure out what brand that is. Um, so, you know, we did a bunch of projects together, uh, and in fact, he, he passed away. Uh, the day he passed away, he missed a design meeting with the, on the Irish project, and I hate to say it, I think the last text message the man ever read was me bitching at him. Oh. So, um, but, I mean, he was a dear, dear friend. So the three of us ended up on this project. But one of them was Ian McMillan, this Scottish distiller, uh, very, very famous, hell of a nice guy. And so Ian shows up at the distillery one day, and he throws me a bottle. Where he's in town, we prototype for this Irish project all the, the, the prototypes for this large distillery that's being built by, by this Irish group that involves a rock star. Right. Uh, we did all our prototyping here at Golden Mint. And so Ian came over to, 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 sh- to work with me on some of the prototyping, which is great. And he hands me this bottle. And I look at it and I go, what the hell is this? He goes, oh, well, you know, I've, got, I've had all these little partial bottles of 65 to 70-year-old single malt. And I threw them in a barrel in my garden shed. And that's what came out of it. <laughs> and so I've still, I saw, he, it was a 500-mil bottle he gave me. And I gave each of my production staff 100 milliliters. Um, he, I kept the rest, and I've still got about uh, 150 milliliters left. Um, and then he told me that he he'd broken down and sold the bottle to a Chinese billionaire for like 10,000 quid a bottle. And I'm like, oh my god, you know. So wow. But the point is, he didn't distill any of that. He blended it. And he bottled. Just put it all in together. And the reason that the that they make older whiskeys like that is because they need to let the whiskeys sit in those used barrels for longer periods of time. So they can pull it out. Where in American whiskeys, it's a different thing because we have to use new oak, at least in part of the process, mm-hmm. in, or unless you're just going to call it whiskey. If you're going to call it bourbon, you're going to call it rye, you're going to call it malt, you're going to call it wheat, you have to use new charred oak. If you're going to call it light whiskey, you have to use new untreated oak. So no char, uh-huh. no toast. So the whole thing with barrels and numbers is a ridiculous game. It and is a ridiculous game. Well, so at my distillery, I use five or six different sizes and types of barrels. Which really makes me question then, because there's this myth, urban legend, if you will. The JMO 18, which uh, supposedly all of the casts from that particular year mm-hmm. were snatched up by uh, an Asian billionaire. That's probably true. And, and taken away. So we'll never see the JMO 18. Which I have a bottle. Well, I'm sitting on it, but at least I can tell you from that. I've been to Middleton. Okay, Middleton has the largest pot stills in the world. Right, but perhaps more importantly, I was there two years ago because we were looking when we were starting to work on this big Irish project, mm-hmm. uh, looking at possibly sourcing some blending juice to start the project from them. Okay, and we, they're not going. Everything, everything that that project is doing is going to be made on site. 
we, we didn't decide to work with Middleton and source their juice. But what amazed me was the insane number of rick houses, barrel houses they already had, and yet the insane number they were building. You go, you go to Middleton, and there's no place else in the world, with the exception of Diageo's barrel facility in central England, where you see that many barrels in one place. Wow. So I cannot imagine that a billionaire bought all the Jameson 18s. I can imagine he bought all of one year's release of Jameson 18. Now, what's happening in China is you've got an entire uh, new class of billionaires that have mm-hmm. risen up in the last decade. And the, the Asians drink by the numbers. So, you know, the, the more valued you are as a friend or a business associate, the older the whiskey you're going to get as a gift. The higher the year. Seriously. <laughs> that um, is awesome. When it's just, it's, it's a cultural thing. It is what it is. And of course. I mean, well, I'm not going to bring out the, the, the 25-year-old red breast for, you know, the guy down the street. But here's the thing. So the, uh, the Asian billionaires, and there's a lot of them at this point, are all trying to one-up at each other because they've got all this newly disposable cash. And they love drinking. A lot of them love drinking good wine, good spirits, eat good food, and they can afford to. So I'm in, a, I'm in one of the oldest distillers guilds in the world. It's called the Worshipful Company of Distillers in, in London, founded in 1638. Oh, my God. And when I was clothed, there was an Irish gentleman that was clothed with me, and he works for Edringer that owns Macallan. His entire business is brokering or selling and bottling essentially 100-year-old casks of limited release into Asia for Asian billionaires. And he looked at me, and he, and he kind of chuckled. I said, well, how, you know, t- how do you do that? He goes, well, A, we've got, that, we've got the stock laid down. It's there. Okay. You know, the angels have drunk a lot. You're not going to get a whole lot yeah, of whiskey out of it. you get the angels share. Right, right, yeah. right. But he goes, he looks at me, he goes, he goes you know, these are million-dollar barrels. I said, well, how many did you sell last year? He goes, oh, 120, 130. Oh. One guy. And wow. that's what he does for one company that's been di- this, that has been distilling long enough and has been big long enough to have a war chest. Now, there's not a lot of American distilleries that are in that position, if any. No. I can't think of – I mean, I don't even think Blanton's comes into that. But the you have to also realize that the vast majority of the whiskey that's consumed around the world is not that. Yes. The vast majority of whiskey that's consumed around the world is somewhere between one year and 12 years old. And a lot of it is on the 10, 8, 10, 12-year side. But when you get in American whiskeys, two, three, four years, you get a lot of extraction, and you, mm-hmm. you're already starting to run the risk of over-oaking. You know, people talk about stra- straight whiskey, and most people don't realize what that means. So a straight whiskey is two years old. Okay. And it's a blend of one or more whiskeys distilled in the same state of the same type. Ah, okay. okay. Bottled in bond is four years old and has to have been, have been produced and bottled within the same bonded facility, a.k.a. bottled in bond. Right. So when you talk about American bonded whiskeys, you're talking a four-year-old standard. Jesus. Okay. Okay. So okay. I can do this. When you start looking at things like Pappy 23. Right. When you look at that bottle of Pappy 23, you got to realize that probably 80 to 90% of those 23-year-old barrels were unbottled, were not 
suitable for drinking as is mm-hmm. because they've over-oaked. And so that material is then taken away and used as blending stock for something else because it's still beautiful whiskey. It's just got too much oak in it. Right. So you mix it with a younger whiskey, and you make something cool. Okay? Got it. The, stu- the ones that, that survive so that are 23 you're studying up the whiskey. Old. I love that. That okay. is great. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're about to release a, project at Gold, a product at Golden Moon that's like that. Okay. It's 15-year-old bur- bourbon Ooh. that we are blending with young Colorado single malt mm. to call, and it'll be Gunfighter Masters Blend. Oh, oh, that's even a better name. I love that. So Gunfighter is one of my brands. In fact, we've got a bottle we've of Gunfighter right bourbon here. here. Which, yep, that's uh, that's that's port finished bourbon. That's not Masters Blend. That's what I'll be drinking today. Well, hang on, hang on. I got a good bottle of single malt, Colorado single malt here. Yeah, but see, that's got numbers on it. I don't want to. I well, I don't know this. I'm you torn. Wanna, you kind of you, you want you want me to do that one? All right. I'll do so that. this won a gold medal at the World Spirits Competition in San Francisco in 2019. Okay, um, and that's the Golden Moon. That's Golden Moon Colorado Single Malt. Okay. So the Gunfighter products, we partner with a distillery in Kentucky. I love that it looks like a wanted poster. And then we bring it into, into our distillery and we finish it in secondary barrels. This one's a port finish. Okay. With the Colorado Single Malts, these are 100% grain to glass. Oh. All the, the, the grain is, uh, is malt. Okay. At least for the, malt, the Colorado Single Malts, of course. Um, it's all Moravian two-row barley, and if that sounds familiar, it absolutely is because that is Golden Malting, a.k.a. Molson Coors. They're two miles away. We, they are we a have cat's toss from you. Well, so we have a teaming agreement with them. We use their malt. Every single grain-to-glass malt product we've ever produced at Golden Moon has taken a gold or double gold at the World Spirits Competition in San Francisco. And it's all Colorado malted right in Golden. So they're both great whiskeys. You can choose either one, or if you want to go in a different direction, I've got a beautiful bottle of our gin here as well. Well, so we'll get to the gin side. Okay. But I'm, I'm so I've got, like, s- a couple of questions. So what, in your opinion, or do you think, has the best whiskey for the region? Oh, God. For our region? Well, in general. If you had to do, like, like your top five, and you don't have to limit it so, to just— And here's the thing. You're asking a brand owner. I know. To tell you what my favorite whiskeys are. No, just region. Region. You don't have to name anybody, but like parts of the world are the one the one that you're like, I was here and something that was made here stood out. So, I mean, you can... You know, it, I, my palate... <laughs> I, I mean, so I have a YouTube series. You've heard about that. I do. And it's we, called it, The Distiller's Basement. Perfect. And that literally is my basement. And if you look at the back bar in my basement, it is it is a 19-foot front bar. Oh, it's bigger than the bar that at, at our Speakeasy in Golden, which is Golden Moon Speakeasy. Um, and if you look at that back bar, you'll understand that my tastes are pretty diverse. Okay, because there's a lot of booze on that back. There bar. is a lot of booze. So, okay. and I ju- and so I judge whiskeys all over the world. I've now consulted on four continents okay. as a master distiller. Okay. Worked in Asia. I've worked, uh, believe it or not, in the Middle East, uh, in Israel, um, and I've worked in Europe. And I've worked in the United States. So I've drunk a lot of different types and styles of whiskey. Um, I'm a huge fan. Let's start with Ireland. Uh, Pre-1922, when Irish whiskey ruled the world because of the the British Empire, Mm -hmm. when Ireland was still all part of the British Empire, um, what the Irish were making were complex multi-grain whiskeys that probably are closer to American bourbons and rice today than to anything that's made in Ireland today. Wow. They were very heavy. They were very complex. 
And there's some P, there's some brands in Ireland now that are resurrecting those styles. Um, Powers nice. has has a release. I think it's called John's Road. Okay. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that is a lovely example of this. Okay. Um, love that style of whiskey. You know, three, four, five grains in it. Um, typically triple distilled. Um, and by the way, the reason the Irish tri- triple distilled their whiskey historically was the demand was so high during the height of, of the British Empire mm-hmm. that they, you couldn't get enough quality grains, so they were getting whatever they could throw together, and they had to triple distir- distill it to clean <laughs> up the spirit. And But triple distilling makes a lighter whiskey. I mean, we've got a triple distilled version of that called Triple, uh, that being Principium that he's opening. And um, it's an entirely different whiskey, and the only difference is that third distillation. So triple distillation is a very cool thing that the Irish do, but other people do. There's also a two-and-a-half distillation process um, that some people do, a number of Scottish distilleries do, a number of Irish distilleries do. Do you want me to get you a glass? You're not, you really were going to sit there and drink in front of me without a glass? <laughs> I was waiting for you to pour me a dram as well. This guy pours himself two fingers in my single malt and looks at me. <laughs> it was such a good setup. Uh, if you're going to pour a glass here, you take no, this No, 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 that is yours. That is yours. I'm going to get my glass. Go get your glass. So um, keep talking because my glass is just right around the corner. All right. But because, right. okay, so the one thing that I, the, uh, th- what are the three biggest misconceptions of whiskey? Because there's, like you said, you get so many different conflicting stories and so many different opinions. So much, so much of what people know. And I, so I, I was a longtime bartender. Mm-hmm. Um, as some of you know, as all of you will know now, uh, we own Golden Moon Speakeasy in Golden, Colorado. It's a cocktail bar. Every drop of alcohol is made by us at Golden Moon. Uh, Westward, once upon a time, named us the top classic cocktail bar in Denver. Um, Gin Magazine just named it uh, Gin Bar of the Year, which is the Global Award here last year. So it's it's a world-class cocktail program. And so I'm a bartender, and I built a bar for bartenders, and it's a great place. One of the things I'll say now that I've explained that I'm a, you know, a, a pretty seasoned bartender or former bartender or whatever it is, um, is that there's a lot of misconceptions that are tribal knowledge that bartenders pass on to bartenders it just simply is not accurate. I mean, when I was coming up through the ranks as a bartender in college, I was always told, for example, that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. Well, I think that was one of the rules. That was like, there's like three And that's not rules. true. That's totally not true. That's, that's totally not true. See? Bourbon can be made anywhere within the borders of the United States. That includes Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico. Right. Okay. Guam. The U.S. minor islands in the South Pacific. If it's in the, if it's in the United States and it's made from at least fifty one percent corn, and it is matured for any period of time in a new charred oak container, doesn't have to be a barrel. Right. It is a bourbon. The same it can be called a bourbon. It well, it's technically legally a bourbon. Okay. So you got the whole Jack Daniels argument that they're not a bourbon. They are legally technically it's a bourbon. Technically a bourbon. But they argue because of their charcoal mellowing process, they're not. They're a Tennessee whiskey. And, I mean, I know yeah, those and guys. and then you get, like, the whole mis- the different spelling of whiskey spelled this way versus whiskey, whiskey spelled that way. Well, and so, so historically, that was a trend that was sort of originally to delineate between Irish and Scottish. Mm-hmm. At least that's one story. 
There's many of them. There's many um, urban stories. Traditionally, the Scots will spell it without an E. The Irish will spell it with an E. And historically, Americans have done it both ways, and both are recognized as legal under the law. Hmm. So, you know, I had someone say, you don't even know how to spell whiskey. I'm like, oh, yeah, I kind of do. Can I know why they spell it the way they do? All right, I don't know if do they spell it, know why they spell it the way they do, but... Mmm, the smell. Now, let me tell you what you're drinking. I'm drinking well, heaven all, is what I'm drinking. Okay. Oh, my God. So, remember we talked about barrel size. Yes. You were drinking a less than two-year-old product that was aged in tiny barrels and still took a gold medal at the World Spirits Competition in really? San Francisco. My God, man, that is just heaven in a glass. So barrel size and barrel type are just two of the tools that a distiller or a maturation manager or a master blender have in their toolkit. Mm -hmm. And so you can juggle, if you will, type of wood, size of barrel, level of char, new versus used. And these are all ways you can change the flavor and the aging profile of a whiskey. It's not just as simple as most people think, and, and it's not just as simple as a lot of distillers do. Right. Which is throw it in a barrel, number three char, stick it on a rack, and come back in three years. Wow. There's so much more you can do if you understand the different variables. And the science so, of it. it so <laughs> when you guys are going to come, you guys are going to do a video at my distillery. We are. We are going to do a tour. Vadim and I will be coming through. We're going to do a whole if you think this is in depth wait do you see when we go to golden because well i'm going to show so you excited. i'm going to show you half a dozen sizes and types mm -hmm. of barrels some of which are custom made for us okay that we use to do different things with whiskeys mm. god that is just so good and there's no like because i know like everyone is like right away well i don't drink whiskey because of the burn there is no burn it's just a good flavor and it's wonderful so it brings me to my next question because i had two questions for you Stephen. that i was like i have i have a master i need to know if there is one item that you're going to pair whiskey with food wise oh, what God. would that one item be so it depends on the whiskey okay okay um i think whiskeys can be drunk from pre-dinner all the way through dessert right okay um, if I'm drinking a heavier whiskey or a heavier cocktail, I'm going to want something that's meaty, that's fried, that's, that's a lot more earthy. Mm -hmm. If I'm drinking a really nice, lighter, like a, a good single malt scotch, um, you know, even some of the lighter Japanese stuff, uh, you know, I'm going to go to a, a, a slightly sweeter dessert. Mm -hmm. Maybe something with a little caramel in it or a little chocolate Ooh, in it. That's a good but, idea. Okay. Um, on the lead-end side, a baked brie. Goes oh. really nice. Oh, I didn't even think about that. A little honey, a little walnuts, a little drizzle of balsamic vinegar. Look at you. You know. See, um, you see perfect question for you. You know, well, so I have, to, I, I have to confess something else about my background. Um, so I grew up working in restaurants, and I am a trained saucier. Ooh. Um, I'm also, I also worked for a couple of years as a sommelier mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college as well. Um, I actually worked, I wore dual hats at a high-end restaurant called the Swiss Lakewood, which at one time was the, arguably the top restaurant in the Tahoe Basin, mm. as the saucier and sommelier for, for, for two years. Jesus. While I was in college. Um, and uh, 
It was a great winter job. You know, I was there. I wasn't there in the summers. I was only there in the winters for ski season. Um, but I, an amazing chef. The restaurant is still there, but it's the chef that owned it has long passed, and it's owned by a the local couple. Changes. And it's still a very good restaurant, but it's not the Swiss like what I worked at. Um, but so I was a som and a saucier there. Uh, I was actually a saucier at one of the big casinos in Reno once upon a time. Mm. Uh, the largest casino in Reno right now, the Pepper Mill. Um, very familiar with that. So one. Uh, I, w- I was there. I was second shift saucier for, or second shift sauce kitchen guy, I guess. So. So but, I mean, to say that but, you love booze is a complete well, understatement. I, I love food. I love <laughs> booze. I love wine. I love cuisine, if you will. And everything we do at Golden Moon, we do a whole lot of spirits, reflects the fact that, you know, I'm third-generation restaurant folk. Mm-hmm. I mean, my grandfather owned restaurants. My mother started in the kitchen in my grandfather's restaurant at seven years old. I started as a, as a scullery kid at a coffee shop in Reno, Nevada at 13, and I'm probably the only person you'll ever meet that got promoted to busboy. <laughs> so... The speakeasy in Golden. Do we have to have, like, a secret knock? Does it well, open we're in an spe- alley? So we're, we're speakeasy. It's in an alley. Okay. We are speakeasy light, if you will. Okay. Um, we were a lot more speakeasy-ish eight years ago when we first opened. Gotcha. We're ju- almost exactly eight years old now. We're about to have our eight-year anniversary here in a couple of weeks. Brilliant. Um, really, I think that we the, the doors opened, um, like, the second week of February eight years ago. So we're really eight years at this point. Um, amazing little cocktail bar, live music three nights a week. Every year has been better than the last, except for COVID. Uh, this year, you survived. We survived. This year's the best year we've ever had by a long shot, or 2021 was. Right. Uh, 2022 was off to a great start. Um, you know, every drop of booze, as I said before, we make uh, ourselves, and we have a world class cocktail program. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, Westward. Uh, named us the top class of cocktail bar I saw in Denver. that on the website. If you go to uh, goldenmoondistillery.com, you can actually see that because that's on the front page. It is indeed. And then most recently, as I said before, Gin Magazine named us Gin Bar of the Year in 2021, which is a global award. Um, so, you know, we're, we're a little You're teeny on the map. wall. You know, you would think that, and I think one of my frustrations is I have so many friends in Denver that think Golden's like the dark side of the moon. They well, don't want to drive out to Golden, and it's 20 minutes away. It's on the other side. And it is. And you have to go through School of Mines if you're coming from, <laughs> from the other direction. But it is out of the way, which sucks, because there are, there are two other whiskey people that do not hold a candle to this. And I'm sure you... I'm not going to even acknowledge their you know, I'm never going to say anything negative about other I'm brands. I'm never going to say negative anything either, but they can't. We have an amazing distilling community here in Colorado. We do. We have a very we have, deep uh, community. I think we're 126 distilleries strong right now. Okay. Um, as I think I mentioned before, I'm on the board of the Colorado Distillers Guild. We have an amazing distilling community here in Colorado with amazing venues across the state. We're really a very tight-knit community. We all know each other. We all work together to support each other. And, and it is all about the booze and the quality. But it's, it's a community as well. And most of Colorado's, because you went down this road, mm-hmm. most of Colorado's distillers are family-owned businesses. They are. And, you know, when you walk in, even Todd Leopold, mm-hmm. it's him, his brother, and his parents backed him up. Yep. I've known Todd for years and years and years. 
He's like a giant teddy bear that's as big a booze geek as I am. <laughs> he took the words right out of him. And mouth. I got to tell you. He's a big, lovey, cuddly kind of guy. Todd's cool as hell. He and is. he's a kindred spirit. You know, I mean, you know, and but but there's so many of them. You know, there's, I mean, where do I even start? And and it, and it's hard, too, because I, there's one that, that I always, everyone always brings it up to me, and I don't know why, and I'm not going to bring it up on, on this conversation, but if you want to ask me, I'll tell you who, who it is. Um, I'll tell you after we get off the air. <laughs> um, but, and they've changed their, their, their brewmaster, and they've gone through changes, and the quality of the product changes. If you lost any of your key component guys in golden would it affect the outcome would, would it change the quality of the product or is it is it you so, got the culture down so tight so i am the master distiller we have drilled down on our formulas and our processes for our our whiskeys our gins etc mm. virtually all the formulas for the botanical liquors and liqueurs um and the processes for everything else i created um James Callinger, who is our who's my lead distiller and production manager. Right. Uh he manages the cuts on the whiskey and he, he cuts very conservative, which is actually good when you're dealing with younger whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Um when I'm distilling and, and and that's great. Uh but I, I know how he cuts. Amadeus, who's our assistant distiller, knows how he cuts. Really? His name is Amadeus? It is. He's oh a great guy. Oh my god, He's I a great guy. love that name all day. Very talent very talented distiller, former brewer. Um you know, fellow veteran. Um, I have nice. an amazing team. So my production team is James Callinger, who has a master's degree in brewing and distilling from Harriet Watt in Scotland. Mm. Very talented brewer and distiller. Right. Then there's Amadeus, who is our assistant distiller. Um, very, very talented brewer, distiller, got a great palate. Uh, we've got a young kid that, that joined us about two years ago, Tori, uh, professional cook, uh, brewer, Worked in breweries. Um, we're training him to be a distiller. Uh, again, his palate is maturing very, very nicely. Uh, and then there's myself. And, you know, the funny, the running joke, I think I, I've told you this before. I may be the master distiller, but when someone starts actually calling you and recognizing you as master distiller in the industry, um, it usually means that you don't get a hell, do a whole hell of a lot of distilling anymore. Which is disappointing. I'm, do you miss it? I mean... That's why I consult, and I got to tell you, I mean, you know, so COVID has put a dampening, a damp, a dampening on our consulting and training activities. I do a lot of training, or we right. did a lot of training. Uh, we are going to be doing a lot more training at, at Golden Moon Distillery again, but we've run three, four, five day courses either alone or through the American Distilling Institute for years. Wow! Um, and those are great because I love teaching. Uh, but I spent t- uh, two and a half years uh, working five to seven days a week in Ireland uh, for a project in County Kildare that is coming online. They're actually commissioning the plant as we speak. Oh, wow. And because of COVID, la- late last spring, you know, they said you know, I was on I was on retainer. I was getting a check every month. And they said that's a big deal out there. Well, though. and they, what they said, you can't come to Ireland. And, you know, this really isn't, you know, well, we they can't, can't lose you. you. But they need you, but they can't have you out there. Well, so the the, the other distiller, master distiller was a Scotsman, as I mentioned, Ian McMillan. Right. Um, and Ian, because because of Ireland and England's affinity, he he could fly over there in 45 minutes from his house. It is literally and just hopping an island. Yeah, it's hopping an <laughs> island. And, uh, you know, in reality, it's it's a three, four-hour iteration to go to the airport. get through, right. but But me coming from Denver, I need to loiter in Ireland for a week to make it worthwhile. 
And so I still have a contract with them. I still have a call every four to six weeks with them. Um, I've still got gallons and gallons and gallons of prototype that they own sitting in, sitting in bottles and buckets and et cetera at the distillery waiting for them to tell me how to dispose of it. Um, but I had to roll off the project because I couldn't travel for COVID. And one of the things that makes me sad about that is now that people view me as a master distiller and I've had contracts, I have contracts where I'm listed as a master distiller, et cetera, um, it allowed me to be creative and actually create new products and do the fun stuff, which is why I left the corporate world and came into this business in the first place. Right. My day-to-day job is running the company, raising funds, marketing sales, PR, um, coming on blogs like this to raise the affinity of our brand. Thank you. And what I really would prefer to be doing is sitting in my lab, making, making, I mean, I, I, I make absinthe. I've, I've been, I actually, so I started distilling about 30 years ago. You don't have absinthe on the website, do you? I do have absinthe on the website. So I started distilling about 30 years ago, started making single malts. Okay. Because I started as a brewer and made some really shitty single malts. Well, you got a grappa. I, I make. I have, I have more than a grappa. So we make, depending on the year, anywhere from one to five varietals, all <laughs> Colorado fruit. We partner exclusively right now with Bookcliff Vineyards. I have not had and a good grappa in ages. We make really good grappa. We only make a tiny bit a year. Uh, we're actually not distributed in Colorado, though we have several restaurants that buy it from us direct. Right. We are distributed, strangely, in Nevada, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Only because all three states came to us and asked for it. Fair enough. And so our largest export market before uh, before COVID was Italy. And a lot of the big Italian grappa producers have become friends with me because they like my grappa. You're, you're, I'm, I'm excited to try your grappa. Oh, yeah, I wish you'd said something. I would have brought you a bottle. Yes, because my, my brother introduced it to me because my, my, my family is actually from Napoli, so... My brother and I, yeah, he you're, speaks, Na- you're Napolitano. Yeah, my my brother is six. And two, by the way, dark so hair, so dark skin. R- remember the the Stiller's basement, my basement. Yeah, I have I have a full blown Napolitano <gasps> pizza oven right outside the door. <gasps> if I tell my brother that, he's never going to leave your house. He's just going to show up. It's two. Stare. It's two tons of, of of ceramic covered in copper tile, so it looks like a still. Oh my god! Where I do pizzas, I do whole freaking racks of. of lamb and veal oh, i do mm. i mean it, it's a full i break bread in it like i said i grew I up think, cooking i think we're gonna have to like do an episode down in your in i your think basement. you're gonna have to do an episode down in the basement so. i'll make some pizza i'll do a pork shoulder and wine oh, there we go. you know i'll do some roasted vegetables we'll drink some cocktails i might even pull out some bottles of wine from some friends of mine that are winemakers mm. so before I get off on a tangent, because now I'm like, <laughs> my mind's going about 90 miles an hour. Um, so out of your um, mad scientist routine, you produce one of the most interesting gins that I have ever seen. Now, I'm not a big gin fan. In fact, I've always told anyone, if I drink gin, it's no let's, just because I like the old man no let's. Um, like that signature series, he made the So no the let's is a beautiful product. It is a beautiful product. So I discovered gin later in life. And so I think I mentioned to you once upon a time that I had been involved with a, with a cache of rare whiskey called the Hannesville Cache. Yes, you did. And I wasn't a huge fan of gin. I was fairly well known at this point as an absinthe distiller. Um, you know, we were, we were building a, v- a variety of brands. I was winning awards with absinthe and liqueurs. 
Um, I was, you know, thinking about returning to my roots of making whiskey, which obviously I've done. Which yeah, you've accomplished. Um, and <laughs> I, I acquired in partnership with a, with a guy in Europe uh, a handful of carboys that had been bought off the shipping dock at the Hannesville Distillery in Martinsville, West Virginia in 1912 right. of whiskeys, gins, and other stuff. And this guy had been uh, the U.S. ambassador to the Court of St. James. Oh. And in 1912, he knew that Prohibition was coming, and he bought some down the hatches. He bought. He brought. He, he brought. He brought. Depending on which family member you talk to, between 36 and 40 carboys of various alcohols to hoard. And his great grandson ended up selling me. Uh, I think it was either eight or ten carboys of liquid, and the bulk of it was 1863 Golden Rye whiskey, which unfortunately we sold ten years ago. Uh, my my business partner in that project bottled it in 200 milliliter samples at one of his distilleries in Europe and sold it off. You can Google Hannesville, mm-hmm. and it will come up. You can read all about it. Um, but there was there were there was one carboy of gin in there, and the carboy of gin was a medicinal style of gin that I'd never tasted before, and I totally fell in love with it. And so we sold that off, and I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And then I dug into my library, and I have a fairly extensive library of rare books on distillation. Right. Um, And I realized that historical medicinal gins were very closely tied to absinthe, and that I had everything in my lab except juniper, which I had growing in my backyard, to make— Which grows wild Right, exactly. (laughs) So I literally went to my backyard, picked juniper berries, and started prototyping what you're now looking at, Golden Moon Gin. So you, because gin is a very, it's a family of spirits. It's not one spirit. Everyone yeah. goes, I don't like gin. Yeah, the reality you know, I is, think, wait, it's ginger. It's overpowering, and they're like, meh. Because even because even like some of the martini people that I have used to run with, because uh, they had like all the martini bars down over off of Larimer Street. They had, uh-huh. you know, oh yeah. So we would go down there, and and that was usually the the the. Hey, I, I, turtle. I went through my so so I went through my my vodka martini phase. Oh, vodka up. Well, so remember, r- remember, vodka by definition should be truly neutral. It should be. And now we're seeing brands, some of which are amazing, coming out with what historically were called atypical vodkas, but they're becoming more mainstream. And for example, I'm going to give my friends at Woody Creek a plug. Mm. Um, their potato vodkas are nice and creamy and fun, very atypical. Okay. Um, I'm going to give PT Wood out in Salida a plug. His potato vodka is delightful. Um, the guys at Denver Distillery make a sweet potato vodka that I truly love. In fact, it's so unique. I do random tastings with my staff. I did one yesterday, yeah. and their potato vodka was in that tasting, and they were like, so "This is really good." I'm like, yeah. "We're not vodka people. This is really good." So, Denver Distillery's potato vodka or sweet potato vodka is delightful, and we're going to circle back and talk about Japanese shochu spirits in a second because oh. I make one, they make one. There's only five distilleries in the U.S. that mm-hmm. make them. We'll talk about that in a sec. But um, so that's vodka. So I went through my vodka phase and as a young man, and I kept finding that when I wanted a martini, I would either lean towards old school martinis, which used a, a, a sweet white vermouth instead of a dry vermouth. Correct. Or I would go and I'd go for a dirty martini. And I'd beat the olive juice. 
You know, I love the pickle brine. Yeah. Um, the olive brine. Gives, um, it gives you a little bite there at the end. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I, I make my own pickles, my own pickle olives. Nice. Again, I, I, again. Fer- I ferment and pickle things. <laughs> I make my own kimchi. I, I make my you own cheese. I probably have like this whole underground network in the basement that I can hardly uh, wait I, to see. <laughs> hey, what I had for breakfast this morning was kimchi fried rice Ooh. with my own house-made kimchi. Nice. And house-made pickled pickled onions. Mm. So, it's I, I'm a geek. We've we've established we, we've this. established this. Right, right. We're 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 so so. Spirits. I went through the martini phase, and I still drink a martini. But what I drink now is essentially what the original martini was, and that is a martini made. And of course, I'd use my gin. I love my own cooking. Of course, um, and I, everything I make is to my palate. If you don't like it, guess what? But I have a good palate, so you probably you might you're, like it. You're probably going to like it. So I have a feeling so given the background. I make my martinis at home now, which are very different than what I used to drink, with ha- half Golden Moon Gin, mm. half Dolan Sweet White Vermouth or Blanc Vermouth, right. two dashes of a citrus bitters, and a lemon twist. Wow. And that is what historically was called a perfect martini. It was. Now I that's had a, one for a long time. That's a little sweeter than it most people like. So at this Goldman Speakeasy, we we're going to make the same martini, but it's two parts gin to one part sweet vermouth, white vermouth, not red vermouth. Right. Um, and then if someone wants to dry uh, a drier martini, we can go there. Um, what's amazing is a lot of people say I don't like martinis. They don't. And know. then I make them one of these, and they go, "This is like no more." I've been using, I've been using the wrong vermouth. Uh huh. Now, the vermouth I, is a, is usually the sealer because depending mm-hmm. upon um, – because I, I got away from the gin side of martinis a long time ago, and I was doing Ciroc up with olives. Okay. And so, it's because it's a great So vodka. I went through a phase – I went through a phase um, right after I got out of graduate school when I was in Detroit with Ford right. where um, my go-to drink was Bombay Sapphire shaken, served up – no vermouth. Wild gin. I love that. Well, and it's funny because, well, so so this year at the American Distilling Institute's conference, right. um, the keynote speaker will be Ann Brock, the master distiller of Bombay Sapphire. Yes. And Ann and I are good friends. Ann and my wife and I are good friends. Um, Ann and I will be doing a session together. Um, oh, that is just We just it, Well, I mean, so... So Anne is Anne just left her role as as the grand rectifier of London's Gin Guild, <laughs> where I'm a warden, and Anne is one of the founding wardens, which means she works for one of the four big brands that founded the Gin Guild. Right. I was the first American warden, um, and what's funny is I still have a soft spot in my heart for Bombay Sapphire, but what Anne has done because she she's only been with the brand for a handful of years. Mm-hmm. Is and she's a she's a PhD chemical engineer from Oxford, that built the brand Jensen's Gin yes. at Bermondi Distillery before being hired away by the Bacardi got folks to run, to be the master distiller at Bombay. Anne is now creating all these unique gins, Ooh. where they had never done that before. They did Bombay and Bombay Sapphire. Now she they're that letting was all they did, and now they so summer uh, was it. Trying to remember the name of the, of the release she did last year. She's got three or four gins out now, and I've got all of them on my back bar. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to go to see this back bar, and I'm just going to hate my bar when I get home. I'm going. It's like it's like I don't know if you ever watched the show Lucifer. 
Oh, yeah, I know Lucifer. And I love that back bar that he has. Oh, it's gorgeous. It is beautiful. I but, feel like that's well, what's going to happen so, when I go home. So here's the bar. thing with Lucifer's back bar versus my back bar. Yes. He has lots of brown spirits that are backlit on, on a glass wall and fewer bottles than I have. My bar is as wide as his but not quite as tall because, I mean, they're like some – Oh, it's like he's got like three stories. <laughs> right, right. Mine's only one story. But I probably have I probably have four times the number of bottles. Wow. Yeah, I'm never going to leave you. And actually, I, 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 I'm sorry. I like the Lucifer series. I oh, kind of, you know, I mean, I, again, I'm a geek. Mm-hmm. You know, so. And every time that there was a fight in the apartment and he went into the bar, that hurt me more than anything else that happened in that show. Well, I looked at it and, and see, so, so my father was a filmmaker. I, you know, my, right. my mother's family were restaurant folk. My father's family were showbiz folk. What I know about that back bar is the bottles were made out of sugar and it, oh, was, yeah. and it was all either Coca-Cola or colored water that they were tea. wasting. Yeah. Or tea or something brown. And so I didn't cringe when that happened. I laughed. You get that initial, like, Ugh, do you need another pour? Are you okay over there? Oh, I'm okay for now. All right, give me another pour. Just remember I have to drive home. By Braille. No. Drink. No. <laughs> we're going to drink responsibly. Drink responsibly always. And we do drink plenty of water. There is water right here in the studio. So, with this, because there's two gins you have listed on your website. Because so, you yeah. have this one, which is the clear one. Right. And there's another one that you have listed as a Portcast Reserve Gin. Okay. And this is the 2014 Reserve Gin that was... So, originally that was a limited release in 2014, and now we do it as an ongoing thing. Okay. So, basically what we did was we took our regular gin, we took a... A California port style wine cask, so French Limousin Oak, number three toes. Very nice. It previously held California port style wine for six to nine years. The same cask, by the way, that we aged the bourbon you have here in. Same type <laughs> just, of cask from the same source. It looks so delicious. It is it's good. Anyway, so we <laughs> we take our gin, we put it in that wet port cask right. for six months. Ooh, okay. So it's not a cask-aged gin like, say, uh, Bowler Distillery, mm. uh, Bowler Spirits does their Imperial gin. That is a true cask-aged gin that makes a very funky, cool Manhattan. It's a really neat product. Mm-hmm. That is a true cask-matured gin. Ours is more like you would finish a scotch or our bourbon or et cetera in a cask. We finished our gin in a wet port cask, just long enough for it to take a little bit of the oaky character on, but more importantly, to take a little bit of the character of what was previously in that gin. So just something to, or lift, in that it, cask just to lift it up a little bit and then, then it, No, it, it totally changes the character. Really? So with our regular gin, amazing cocktails, but it, it's great and neat, and it's, it's, got enough, it's thick enough, has enough essential oils, like if you're going to make a Negroni, mm-hmm. a lot of your, your London Dry gin style gins, bartenders will have to add an extra half an ounce of gin in there to get the gin flavor to come through. Right. You don't have to do that with Golden Moon Gin. You can go one, one, one. One ounce Golden Moon Gin, one ounce Campari or another Red Bitters, one ounce Sweet Vermouth, I prefer Cokie Torino, and you got a beautiful cocktail. Now, our port finished gin, because it takes on this additional character, at the same time, some of the essential oils and chemicals that make up the gin flavor will volatize out while it's in that cask. So our regular gin is very juniper and lavender forward. Right. Our port finished gin has has more fennel character to it. A little bit of almost a licorice note. 
because some things have changed while it's maturing in that cask. Okay. People, so <laughs> people I are rubbing up against each other. We don't know what's going on. The lights are Well, out. it's funny because we mentioned Ann Brock, who's, yes. my, who's the master distiller at, at Bombay. She and I have spent hours and hours and hours trying to chemically explain what's going on, what's in, going on in my poor gin. And neither of us, she's got a Ph.D. in chemical engineering. Neither of us really fully understand the science of the change. We understand it at the basic level. Right. But we're going to need a lot more lab time. I, I think, and I love hanging out with her, so I'm looking forward to it. I think what this should be referred to as the Barry White effect. Oh, God. Anyway. <laughs> so so you mentioned we have two gins. So, so you have the, two gins. The port finished gin. Yes. Great sipping gin in the way I like to drink it. My favorite summer cocktail of all time. Again, I'm going to make that classic martini. Right. Except I'm going to use the port finished gin. And I'm going to take the same Dolan white vermouth which is a sweet white, not a dry. And I'm going, instead of lemon peel, I'm going to use orange peel. And stirred, served up, it's on a hot summer day, there's nothing like it. But for other cocktails, we have a lot of people that will say, I want the reserve gin in my cocktail. For any heavier gin cocktail, if you mix it with a heavy mixer, it's just going to disappear. So a friend of mine, his favorite drink is a gimlet. Okay. That is that you, is his go-to. Uh, so use the regular would, gin, not the port perfect. finish. Okay. Especially because you're going to garnish the gimlet with a pickled olive. Yes. And the sweetness of the port wine will clash with the pickled olive. Uh. So use our regular gin for that. Then there's several other gins that Golden Moon has made. So there's a product that that boutique gin company out of the U.K., which distributes in about 18 countries. Right. Um, they do craft partnership gins. I think they've done 38 of them now. And we've done three of them. And one of them is Expeditionary Gin. Golden Moon Expeditionary Gin, that boutique gin, gin company. You can Google it, find it online. Right. Um, the UK, Finland, Japan, South Africa. Um, I believe a small quantity made it into the U.S. last year. Um, we produce that for them. Uh, it's in their standard bottle. The label has me on a motorcycle with an antique still on the back and Golden's Golden's Twin Castle Rocks <laughs> on the label. That is awesome. And my distillery's logo on the fender of the motorcycle. Oh, my God. That is fantastic. Um, yeah, it's hilarious. Uh, it's cool. It's a great gin. Uh, so it's a derivative of this formula. Basically, I told James, our, our production distiller, take our formula, dry it out, make it more spicy. And that's exactly what he did. And he did an amazing job doing it. Hmm. So he, we, he pulled some, some botanicals out. He had a little grains of paradise for additional spice. Right. Um, he pulled back on the floral notes of the lavender, and it's much more to the British palate, which is a little drier, a little spicier. And immediately we took a gold medal at the World Gin Awards. And the funny thing is they called me to congratulate me on my medal, and I said, yeah, but I didn't enter. Our importer, our partner, that boutique gin company entered. Wow. So um, really pleased with that. We've done several other gins for them. Um, we've done, I probably have somewhere between 36 and 40 gin formulas around the world that are in production that I've done for people uh, that we prototyped at, Gold, at Golden Moon. So, because one of the other things, and, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, it's a slippery slope, because you get scotches thrown in there. What's wrong with scotches? Scotches are great. I'm not a PD fan. 
Well, so let's talk about scotch for a second. Yes. Okay. Because I would love so, to talk about so scotch. So here's the thing. You. Scotch is a very rigid world. It is a very rigid but world. But that rigidness, so everybody in Scotland has to start with essentially the same raw ingredient. And there's some variations in terroir with malt, but Scottish malt that's used is, is there's not a whole lot of variation. Mm-hmm. There's getting to be more now. And you're getting to see some old school multi-grain uh, or other grain whiskeys. Now, you have to understand, remember I talked about 1922, pre-1922 right. Irish whiskey. So the brown spirit of choice in the British Empire during the height of the British Empire was Irish whiskey. Scots whiskey was being produced. In 1922, the Irish pushed for independence, which led to an economic embargo of Ireland by the British. As a result, the British enacted various uh, uh, economic development activities to, to get the Scottish whiskey industry to grow. And distilling off of barley is in many ways easier than distilling off of multigrain as long as you have access to huge quantities of barley. So mm-hmm. they incentivized farmers in Scotland to grow barley. Okay. So what we ended up with is an industry that's very barley-focused, where pre-1922 Ireland and Scotland both were making multi-grain whiskeys not dissimilar to American bourbons and rice. Okay? Oh, okay. So really you started to see a shift based on political and economic reasons where people focused on barley. And I'm a barley guy. I mean, not only do I make single malts, but if you'll notice... I've got Barley tattooed you running do. up my arm. Oh, my God. I didn't see that. And my dog's name is Barley, one of my two dogs. So I'm a Barley guy. I mean, I started as a brewer. And I love Barley, and I love making whiskey out of Barley. Mm-hmm. But th- we distillers are very pragmatic folk. And historically, we've used whatever fermentable we could get our hands on to make booze to make money. That's the history of distilling. <laughs> so now, now let's go back to Scotland. Hence why the Friars had wine. We get it. <laughs> so, well, and, and not just the Friars had wine, but remember... It, were, it, it, was, it was Irish monks coming back from the Crusades mm-hmm. that brought distilling to Ireland and started distilling off of grain and then brought that technology to Scotland. So the Irish, because the Irish got it from the Arabs, mm-hmm. who probably got it from the Chinese or the ancient Egyptians or the Greeks, well, yeah. depending on How which history you read. <laughs> okay, Whoever won that fight. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> and so... Uh, Scotland, really post-Irish independence, started to make a huge amount of whiskey out of barley because they were being incentivized by the British government to grow barley. Mm-hmm. And so in modern Scotland, you've had a, you know, generations and generations and generations of very talented distillers that have been forced to use only one fermentable as, as a, for their artistry. Right. Now, realize, single malts didn't become really a true thing until the 1960s. Right. Though the, the earliest single malts can go back into the 1800s. Well, you can see them. Mm-hmm. Let me finish. Let me keep going. Let me keep going. <laughs> but barley as a major ingredient, because of political and economic reasons, became more and more important in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the last 60 years of the Scottish whiskey industry, if you're going to have variation, it's going to not be based on the fermentable. Again, they were mostly using used bourbon casks, so it's a single-size cask. Oh, okay. And so you have less variation there. They started using used sherry casks 
only in the last 40 years or so. I mean, they were before, but they, that became practice, and they started getting custom coopered sherry age casks oh, okay. in the last 40 years or so. And what they've done is they've found other ways to innovate other than the grain source, other than the mash bill, where we Americans have... It's been the Wild West. I mean, we've got some rules, but an American craft distiller can do whatever the hell we want. Yeah, we don't care. Well, I mean, it's what we call it. I mean, so I have friends that run major distilleries in Scotland and that I've worked with in consulting projects, et cetera, that, you know, they look at me and they go, how did you even think of that? And I was like, because you're not allowed to do that in Scotland. (laughs) Now, having said that, I trained in Scotland. I trained in Scotland. I love the Scottish way of distilling, um, though it is very rigid. Um, and the, some of the ways they've been able to market differentiate individual products and be creative are secondary cask aging in wine casks, mm-hmm. which is where when Golden Moon, our gunfighter double cast series, originally came out, there were virtually virtually nobody else in the U.S. was finishing bourbons and ryes in port. Right. I learned it in Scotland. It's not rocket science. The Scots have been doing it for years. I learned that <laughs> lesson well. Out of necessity. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about peat for a second. You don't like peat. You no. know what? So peat is a vegetable material that is essentially rotted. It's used. It was used as a fuel historically in both Ireland and Scotland. And so you are now starting to see Irish distillers using some peat again. But remember, there's a little thing called terroir. So terroir means that you've got the entire environment that vegetables grow in, whether it's the grain, whether it's the grape, whether it's the vegetables that ultimately become peat. So when you go to to Isla in Scotland, Mm -hmm. the water around Isla is bracky, so it's got some salt in it. Yes. And you've got a certain type of vegetation that becomes peat. So all your Laphroaigs, your Beaumors, your Bonobins, the peat that's used in those whiskeys originally it was a heat source. Now it's a flavor component. Is typically a brinier or saltier and heavier peat. Right. Yes. You Depending go to, upon the region. Well, no, like, we're talking Isla. We're okay. only talking Isla. Okay. Okay. Now you go to Spaceside where I trained. Mm-hmm. Spaceside peat is clear water peat. Entirely different type of vegetation. Yes. In no salt, typically a lot limestone aquifers, typically the glens, if you will. Yes. Okay? And so the peach you get in Speyside, which is where 60% of your Scottish whiskeys are made, mm. is entirely different from what you're going to get from, from an isla malt. Because, mm. And then... You go ahead and you look at, okay, how much peat do you want to use? Right. Now, when you go to a big malt house like Port Gordon, which is in, which is in, in, in Speyside. Yep. Um, and I actually spent a week there training once. Fascinating. Loved it. And again, I'm a geek. Okay. So, um, so the science has got you all Twitter-pated. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they literally take and they have one kiln, and I'm going to call it a kiln. It doesn't look like a traditional kiln at all. It's a big cone vessel. Mm-hmm. It's more like a fermenter. And they take peat from local bogs. They, and they and they create smoke and they blow it through the kiln while they're while they're kilning the barley. Wow! Then and they segregate that from the other barley. Then they turn around and the different distillers will come to them and say, "We're going to make this whiskey and we want X parts per million of peat." They will blend the peat from the smoky kiln right with the peat from the other kilns, which has no or with the malt rather right from the other kilns, which has no peat in it. 
to come to the standard level of peatiness. That is fat. So that is fascinating. Oh my you, god! If you go to Cardu, which is the ancestral home of Johnny Walker, yep, and arguably the the lightest whiskey made in Scotland, very old distillery. Hey, that's just Susie. Oh, I love your shirt, by the way. Again, back to the geekiness. Yeah, back to the geek. Susie just walked in. Everybody knows Susie on the podcast. Hi, Susie. So if you go to Cardu, where the Johnny Walker house is, Cardu makes very light whiskeys. And their whiskeys are traditionally two parts per million of peat in the mash. Wow. Okay. Where if you look at some of the really crazy, insanely heavy peated whiskeys, and the one that comes to mind is a blend called Compass Box Peat Monster. There is, and like any Which of the northern ones. 24 parts per million of peat. Oh, my God. Compared to two at Cardu. Oh. They're literally taking, and they're going to the malt houses, and they're saying, we want X parts per million, but certain whiskeys are going to go to a, a malt house like Port Gordon, which is going to use the Speyside peat, which is very different mm-hmm. from an Isla peat you're going to see down south supporting... Regional. Supporting... You know, those those really heavy, funky scotches that come off of Isla. And and so I'll tell you, I worked at a little bar called Duvernay in Reno, Nevada, years ago. And back in the 80s, we had 30 single malts on the bar, which is unheard of. And this is why I'm in whiskey today. I fell in love with Boonhaven, which the original release was Boonhaven 12, which mm-hmm. is an Isla malt. Okay? To this day, it's one of my favorite scotch whiskeys. Um... I've fallen in love with another Scotch whiskey since, and that happens to be Glenn Farkless. Oh, and I know that one. Well, and both of these are big names. Yes. And so what's really weird is they're my two favorite whiskeys, and my friend Ian that I was co-master stolen on the Irish Project, A, used to run Boonhaven, <laughs> and B, Colin Fraser that runs Glenn Farkless was his mentee. So it's a really small it's world. so small. But Glenn Farkless is entirely on the opposite end of the spectrum of Boonhaven. Yeah. And even better, Glenn Farkless, my favorite distillery in Scotland, I might add, Glenn Farkless is a family-owned distillery with their own limestone aquifer that has been in existence since the 1880s. And uh, their whiskeys are just awesome. And they're one of the last two distilleries in Scotland to do direct fire distilling. Oh, I did not know that. All in right. fact, I went there a few years ago, and, and I was introduced to Cullum, and I said, and, and when I, we, we, I was thinking I wanted to do big direct fire stills, right. which for fire code reasons I, I wasn't able to do here. <laughs> um, and I said, you know, I called him up, and I said, you know, I'd like to come down. He said, yeah, I heard you want to come down. You want to see some stuff. What do you want to see? I said, well, I heard you've opened one of your flus for the first time in 38 years, and I'd like to see that. He goes, you want to see my flu? I said, yeah, and your burners would be nice, too. Yeah, why not? And I literally, they had, they had the kettle out. The big pit was there. The burner was in there. Holy I crap. I photographed it. I took all kinds of measurements. It was awesome. And then he goes, what else do you want to see? I go, your effluent plant. He's like, who are you again? <laughs> I am the world-renowned Stephen. No, I'm just a geek. I'm, I'm a geek in a distillery. I want to nerd out. You know, I've only, you know, I mean, no, I didn't go on a distillery tour to look at the big kettles and go, ooh, ah. I wanted to see how they ran the distillery yeah. and certain things they did that nobody else did. And the way they handled their water, the way they handled their effluent, and the way that they, you know, the way that they, 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 they use their direct fire stills were important to me. 
Yeah, I mean, water is a big is a big element. Well, I mean, nobody so really considers that. That's not true. Um, Scotland, they brag about it a lot, and we at Golden Moon are incredibly blessed. Right. So everything we do at Golden Moon uh, that we distill grain to glass or fruit to glass is fermented with 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 Colorado Rocky Mountain runoff from the Montezuma and Clear Creek watersheds. Right. Every deproofing water we put in all in all our gunfighter whiskeys, which are sourced and then finished, mm-hmm. is again Rocky Mountain runoff, and the minerality that we get is both a blessing because of great flavor and a curse, and it's a curse because I have to do all kinds of water softening to protect my boilers, <laughs> and if you don't properly filter and manage, you get flecking, and people drink with their eyes and don't like to see sediment in their That's- bottles. And heavy mineral water, and it's funny because I've sat with my Scottish friends that all a lot of these distillers have their own limestone aquifers that they brag about. Right. And every one of them struggles with the same challenge of deproofing water and having to filter, because all these aquifers have beautiful dissolved minerals which help in fermentation mm-hmm. and benefit flavor, but then create flecking in the final product if you don't filter. Hey, I'm used to sediment. I drink wine. You know, when we so the first single, the first single malt we ever released at Golden Moon, uh, Golden Moon Colorado single malt. Mm-hmm. It's just what we called it, and we're we're getting ready to do another release. Took a double gold to San Francisco with a two year, a less than two year old product, and it sold out immediately. Of course. And I did. I deliberately did not filter the water because it would improve flavor. And I had people. We had buyers all over the world buy bottles because it's a big award, right? It is. And I had a guy call me from Scotland that had, that had it in his collection. And he goes, something wrong with this? There's sediment in it. And I said, look, <laughs> I'll send somebody up to pick up the bottle because it's batch one. <laughs> I'll send, uh, you know, it was cask one, actually. Right. I'll send somebody to pick up the bottle. I'll give you a fresh bottle that's filtered, but it ain't going to taste as good. He goes, oh, no, no. I'll keep it. But I just wondered because, you know. He just wanted to check Well, I mean, when I, when I was training, I, I had this old distiller in Scotland when I was training up there years ago. That looked at me and, and, and looked at our class and said, you know, this group of us, and said, you got to remember, you know, talked about coal filtration, which yeah. I hate. Mm. He said, coal filtration will get everything out. And remember, people drink with their with their, with eyes. their eyes. Mm-hmm. And if you take like the single malt you're drinking here, which is not cold filtered, which you love, I don't, I don't want it cold filtered. I've cold filtered the same product. It looks exactly the same. It doesn't taste the same. Sucked it sucks. Sucked all the flavor out of it. Sucked all the flavor out of it. I do not like cold filtration. Nope. If I were making a vodka, I do it all day long. And some beers, but no. Well, and I'll tell you. So, so I've 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 played around with things like vermouth for people. Right. Um, with a vermouth, I will do an in wine mace, cold maceration, and then I will cold filter a vermouth mm-hmm. to get all the solids out. And with vermouth, depending on the product, it works really well. With a whiskey or a brandy, I would never. No. Never, never, never. Same with the gin. You're going to lose all your essential oils. It's well, going to be sludge in the bottom of the. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Sludge. That's. I'm, I might as well just, you know, never mind. I'm not going to bring up that. Never mind. <laughs> I was going to. I was totally going to bad joke that one. Um, last. Now, now speaking of Colorado grown, mm-hmm. last product that is on your website that I'm very intrigued with because this is something that has kind of come along and it has elevated over the last couple of years, and that's your Applejack. A Golden Moon Applejack is a distilled from a blend of Colorado-grown apple ciders. Mm -hmm. Because you have, like, Angry Orchard that has exploded onto the scene. Well, so let's talk about things for a sec. So Angry Angry Orchard 
is a cider, not an Applejack. Correct. Um, you have local producers like Stem Ciders, and probably 60% of the cider produced in Colorado is Stem. Yes. And they make a great product. Um, they're friends of mine, and we actually partner with them for the Applejack. Oh, okay. Um, and by the way, if you're in Lafayette, they've got a beautiful cidery, a great restaurant. Go visit them. Anyway, um, where, where Angry Orchard uses a variety of apples from around the country and is a, is a mass-produced product. It's a very good product. I'll drink it. Mm-hmm. And I'll drink it with a smile on my face. Stem is using, is using predominantly Colorado cider, which is more expensive. Um, and, Eric, I apologize if I'm speaking out of turn here. Um, and uh, uh, they, you know, they crush and blend for us. And we take their cider. We use our proprietary in-house yeast, which is different than anybody else's yeast. Right. And then we do a single pass on an old French brandy still. Oh. And the reason we do that is historically, so Apple Jack is an, a, uclea, a uniquely American style of, of brandy. Mm-hmm. Most apple brandies around the world are made in more of what I would call a Calvado style. So they're double distilled or triple distilled or they're distilled in a hybrid still, what typically is the same style as still Armagnac is made in. Right. Um, or they're distilled in a true column still. And then they're aged in barrels for years, which means for most apple brandies, the major flavor component you're going to get is not going to be the fruit. It's going to be the oak. Okay. Historically, traditionally, apple jack was made in the U.S. Originally, the process of jacking involved freezing apple cider that had been fermented, removing the ice crystals and to increase the alcohol content and then bottling it. Um, in fact, my grandfather during Prohibition did that and sold it at his restaurant. Um, he also is, made bathtub gin. That is fantastic. In New Hampshire, in Claremont, well, New Hampshire. Well, in New Hampshire, you have to do that in New Hampshire. Right, right, right. <laughs> Anyway, so that was the way it was locally done pre in the early colonial days. Okay. But then during the, the, the big colonial era where Applejack was arguably either that or peach brandy were the most popular spirits in the, in the Americas. Um, they would take and they would make a fermented cider. And the distilleries were either adjacent to the cidery or on site. And they were simple pot stills, mm-hmm. simple thin skin copper stills. And they would do a single pass through the still. They would throw it in a barrel and they would take it to market and sell it. So any color or flavor influence would come from that brief contact with the oak barrel. Okay. And so what you would get would be a very apple-forward, uh, let's call it an, a lightly oak-aged apple eau de vie. So what we do at Golden Moon is we do a single pass to an antique copper still. We lightly oak it. We put it in a bottle, and we sell it. And so what you get is a very apple-forward with a lot of the apple character that most apple brandies lose mm-hmm. because of double or triple distillation. A little less oak than you're going to get in most apple brandies. But because we use some chipping as well, we do get enough oak extraction to get almost a slight bourbon finish on the end. So it's a really unique and fun product. And what I like doing with this is I make a Colorado Applejack Manhattan. See, and I was going to get to that. Here we go. Because I saw that, and I'm like, this would be so— It's awesome. Yes. It's one of my favorite cocktails. And I have a lot of favorite cocktails, if you hadn't noticed. (laughs) So it's two parts Golden Moon Colorado Applejack. Okay. One part Cokie Torino Vermouth, which is a brown vermouth. Yes. It's one of the oldest, most prestigious brands mm-hmm. 
in the world. Uh, Roberto Bava and his family, they've been making wine in Cochinado for 400 years. They're vermouth rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, so go to, the, go to the local bodega, and if you want a good cocktail vermouth, buy Coqui Torino. Just giving a plug to another friend. I no, absolutely. It, but it's a great vermouth. Um, so two parts Applejack, one part their vermouth, three to four dashes of Angostura bitters. Okay. Stirred, served up, and for God's sake, use a proper cherry. Don't buy one of those artificially colored red things. Those manichino things. Buy a those decent, buy, buy, buy a, a Merino, buy a Luxardo, buy some sort of quality cherry, because otherwise you're not going to get a good cocktail. Do do yourself a favor. Do the, the Luxardo. That is the best way Actually, to go. Actually, so we use the Amarone at Golden ah, Speakeasy. Okay. And we use the Torino at Goldman, and we use them interchangeably. Right. They're essentially the same so, as yeah, the Luxardo. They're the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're, all, they're all the Marasca cherry from the from, – they're grown in Italy, but the, the, the species of cherry comes from the eastern side of the Aegean on the Labrador coast. Yep. And it's a dark sort of a pickled cherry, sweet pickled cherry. Um, you're going to get a better cocktail. Yes, you are. And we are all, all about our cocktails here. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen. <laughs> Uh, Stephen, I apologize, but it looks like we have come to the end of this week's episode. That is too bad. I'm enjoying this. I know, and we're already like in almost an hour and a half in. Nice. So, well, look, time sure flies. Everybody, you know, keep listening to this guy. You know, oh, if you're ever out in nice. Golden, please come by the distillery for a visit. Please come by the speakeasy for a please. cocktail. Please, we would love for you to go to your local bodega. And ask them for a bottle of Golden Moon Colorado Single Malt, any of our releases, Golden Moon Gin, or any of our Gunfighter Whiskey releases. Every one of them makes a great cocktail, and every one of them is fun to drink neat. So if the um, fans at home and the millions around the world that listen to us, how do Millions they, and millions. Millions. Actually, we have, we have two listeners now in Indonesia. Nice. I, I, I only had one for a while, and now I have two according to my demographics. So my... my my love to my Indonesian brethren out there. How do they properly stalk you? How do they follow you? Where do they need to go to stay plugged in to the world of, okay. of this? GoldenMoonDistillery.com GoldenMoonSpeakeasy.com The Distiller's Basement on YouTube. We are distributed in 17 states here in the U.S. We're distributed in the United Kingdom, Denmark, Norway, Germany, Italy, and Taiwan. Wow. God damn, you are worldwide. I'm trying. You are better than Pitbull. No, don't even go there. <laughs> hey, I'm making I'm making good booze in Colorado. You are. And, and no, great booze. Thank you, thank good. you. Good. I can I'll I'll tell you who good is once we get off. But this this is great. Everybody, do yourself a favor. Buy quality cocktail ingredients and make a cocktail. Yes, exactly right. Absolutely right. Quality ingredients. Mega cocktail. That means good cherries, good vermouth, good spirits. And you know what? Go to your local distillery down the street. Patronize them. They're mostly family-owned businesses. You know, show them some love. Get to know them. Get to know their products. And one last thing. If I can say nothing else that you remember from this today, drink what you like and drink it the way you want to drink it. Treat yourself. That's right. And you will look forward to seeing the demon and I do a tour of the, the distillery, which I am absolutely excited for. And evidently, we're going to do a third episode as we go down into 
the, the distiller's, distiller's basement. basement. God, I'm going to put an echo effect to that because that is just fantastic. Uh, there you have it. That's this week. Thanks for tuning in. Give us a like. Give us a share. Uh, we will see you next week with Lord knows what. But in the meantime, run fast, laugh hard, and always be kind. Good night. <laughs>